Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good to see you all. Uh, A very happy Palm Sunday, but because it's me, it's going to go very dark very shortly. Uh, Palm Sunday is an interesting one because you never quite know, you know, which bit of the story do you want your approach to be. This, we begin this story with the triumphal entry of Jesus. We move almost immediately into the clearing of the temple, and then everything just starts to fall apart. And so I wanted today to kind of give um, a large picture view of really all of Holy Week, um, what it is that we are remembering uh, this week. And, you know, I like how Jonathan was talking about when we read, we're, we're remembering things, and in um, in, in Jewish perspective, in, in their philosophy, to remember something is not the way that we do. A lot of times in the West, we think, oh, this thing happened 2,000 years ago and wasn't that nice. Okay, that's how we usually do remembrance. Um, when we participate in Holy Communion, when we read the scriptures, we remember, oh yeah, Jesus did this thing 2,000 years ago, and gosh, aren't we glad that he did. Um, but in, in Jewish philosophy, to remember something is to recall what God was faithful to do in the past so as to make it happen again in the future, okay? So in their prayer, in their sacraments, remembrance is saying, we want to see that become true today again. And that's my hope for all of us today, uh, as I'm speaking of that last week of Jesus' life, that we're recalling what Jesus has done in the past so that it happens again today, Because what we're looking at here really are these patterns, these kind of cosmic patterns um, of things, of the the eternally true things of God that continue to be true in in incredibly personal ways in our lives, uh, but for all of creation itself. So last week we finished uh, our series, Eureka, going through the Old Testament, looking for evidence of the pre-incarnate Christ, speaking of wisdom, and especially looking at how Paul was speaking of Christ crucified. So in a way, uh, I'm kind of continuing on with that. Um, One of the things that really struck me about Paul talking of Christ as the wisdom of God, Christ crucified, he says, you know, the Jews demand signs and wonders and the Greeks look for wisdom, but I preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Um, I keep read the news every night before I go to bed. Great way to fall asleep, you know? Um, It is so peaceful. It's you know, um, and especially if you're a Manchester United fan and you're just reading about every mediocre, mediocre week that's happening in football and then you switch over to reading about the war in Ukraine, great. Really good for my psyche. Um, but if you keep up with the news or if you're like aware of what's happening in the world today, you see a lot of that demands and the foolishness and like these, these, ins- these kind of powers and principalities in the world that are insisting on ways to do things. And it just, I don't know about you, but like, I just feel like a lot of things in the world don't seem to be working. (laughs) Like a lot of the philosophies of life, a lot of the insistence on the way that we're going to save the world, usually through violence or whatever it might be, like it isn't working. And I don't know about you, but like I come here on a Sunday morning, like I need to be here because I'm so sick and tired of it. Like I feel like I'm a crazy person during the week because I'm looking at what's happening in the world, and I'm like, when are we going to get this? And I want to come here, and I want to be with my people, and I want to sing songs, and I want to approach the table, and I want to read the word, 
because I want to be reminded of like the only thing that's eternally true that stands over and above all of the insanity that we find in the world around us. Um, and that's what we're going to be doing today. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right into this. So Heavenly Father, uh, we testify to the truth that you are here and that you are with us, that you are a God who turns curses into blessings. And even this week, Lord, um, as we remember in Holy Week the last moments of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, we do pray um, that those eternal patterns that are revealed to us in the life of Christ would become real to us again. That not only do we remember them as a thing that once happened in history, but we remember them as an invitation to open our lives up to you that we might participate in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Lord, whatever we're bringing in with us, whether it's the guilt, the regret, the frustrations of the past, whether it's the anxiety or the despair for the future, we lay those things at the feet of the cross right now. And we present ourselves open-handed and open-hearted to you. We give you permission to do whatever you see fit to do and to speak whatever you desire to speak to each one of us. Speak, Lord, for we are listening. The primary text that I'm going to be reading today is one of my absolute favorites. I believe that there are these kind of pinnacle scriptures that it would do well for us to, to internalize and to memorize. And they, for me, they become these scriptures through which I read the rest of scripture, whether it's uh, gospel stories, whether it's the letters of Paul, even when it's going back to the Old Testament. Um, and, and, and I think, again, we've talked a lot in this past series, especially about our approaches to the Bible and how many of us grew up with this like flat text reading of scripture, like this verse in Leviticus weighs the same as this verse in Matthew, which weighs the same as this one in Jude. And I think that's very unfortunate because there are these certain uh, claims, especially in the early church that they make, that were, are these really high perspectives that we are to hold of Christ, that when we use those passages as lenses, we begin to look at some of the particulars and the pieces start to fall into place. And um, so this is Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 11. It's going to be on the screen behind me, um, but you're also more than welcome to, um, to close your eyes and to allow the Lord and to give you imagery uh, that might make it come alive for you. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if our shared life in the King brings you any comfort, if love still has the power to make you cheerful, if we really do have partnership in the Spirit, if your heart's are at all moved with affection and sympathy, then make my joy complete. Bring your thinking into line with one another. Here's how to do it. Hold on to the same love. Bring your innermost lives into harmony. Fix your minds on the same object. Never act out of selfish ambition or vanity. Instead, regard everybody else as your superior. Look after each other's best interests, not your own. This is how you should think among yourselves, with the mind that you have because you belong to the Messiah, Jesus, who, though in God's form, did not regard his equality with God as something he ought to exploit. Instead, he emptied himself 
and received the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of humans. And then having human appearance, he, doubled, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death. Yes, even the death of the cross. And so God has greatly exalted him, and to him in his favor has given the name which is above all names, that now at the name of Jesus every knee within heaven shall bow, and on earth too, and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus, Messiah, is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So this is what we call a Christ hymn. There's a couple of these in the writings of Paul that we think are actually these early songs that the followers of the way would sing to one another. So they would gather much like we would. They would listen to the proclamation of Scripture as we would, these letters being passed around, uh, looking at what we consider the Old Testament. They were you know, reading some of the stories of Jesus. They were reading the letters of Paul and so on. And they're singing these songs that are reminding themselves. Do you know that when you sing, there's something that happens that's different than just memorizing facts, okay? In the same way that when we listen to Scripture proclaimed, it's something different than just sitting and reading it quietly to yourself. And they understood on this foundational level how necessary it was that we gather to tell one another the story through word, through participation, uh, through the sacraments, through prayer, so that we're always swimming in that and we're constantly have this expectation that we're being transformed by the Spirit of Jesus uh, within us and among us. And so what I love about this Christ hymn is that Paul takes this concept of humility. He says, this in some way is already in the fabric of who you are, but I want you to complete that. I want you to come into accord with one another And I want you to treat one another in a certain way. And then he kind of leads into this Christ hymn, which had probably been passed around from church to church and community to community. And what I love is that it immediately elevates this concept of humility, as we're going to see in a moment. But there's some key things here, I think, that help us uh, to understand what it is that we're remembering has happened in this this week, in Holy Week, um, almost 2,000 years ago. And then to, again, as I said, to call it into the present moment so that it would be true once more. And so first off, Jesus, as the human God, leaves behind the heights of heaven to plummet to the depths of hell on our behalf. In all of these Christ hymns, this is what we see them saying. And it's interesting to note in the early church, the gospel was not advice on how to go to heaven when you die. A lot of us have been, we've grown up with a very selfish, self-centered view of the gospel. And the question that was presented to us by the church was, how do I go to heaven when I die? And then someone gave you advice on how to do that. And then the next category is, how do I have a happier marriage? And how do I raise my children so that they're not pagans? And so on and so forth. And all that's great. I think advice is delightful. Please, we need more device, like advice on the internet, amen? Does, do you guys feel like there's a real lack of opinions out there and just someone telling you what to do and what to believe? I just think we need more of that. The gospel is a declaration followed by an invitation. And so whenever you would, you know, and oftentimes people ask me, well, what is the gospel? Because people want someone to say something like, Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven when you die, which I do not believe is the gospel. I believe that's a subcategory of it. I think that's a, that's a benefit of the gospel. 
But when you read the early Christians, what they would say is, it is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That he lived in accordance with the scriptures, um, that he was faithful until the end, um, that he died in accordance with the scriptures, and then on the third day he was raised again. That is the gospel. We see it in 1 Corinthians 15. We see it in Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20. We see it here in Philippians 2. This is the gospel. It's not that the story just sets us up so that we can understand the gospel, which is for me to get this thing, some sort of like afterlife insurance or whatever it might be, but it is the declaration that now everything is different because Jesus, as the human God, and I'm borrowing that from my friend Ken Tanner, who's a priest up in Michigan. I love that. Jesus, as the human God, the full embodiment of what God is like in humanity, the story of him beginning in this place of the highest heavens and plunging to the depths of hell on our behalf, like that is the true gospel. And what we looked at in this last series in Eureka is that in Yahweh, in the Old Testament, God is purging our pagan mindsets where we naturally want to pull God down to earth. That the, the, the radical nature of this declaration that the Jewish people had is that God does not have a shape or a form like all of these other gods. He's not like half fish and he doesn't live in the ocean like all these other pagan gods. And our ancestors kept trying to do that. We kept trying to paganize Yahweh and make him kind of work the way that everybody else did. That's why we were so fond of sacrifice 5,000 years ago and it's why we're so fond of sacrifice today. Except we just call it something else. I've talked about that a lot, how if you want to know what you worship, look at what you sacrifice your time and your resources to. If you want to know what we as a country worship, look at what we sacrifice our children to. Okay? Look at the military-industrial complex. Look at how we sacrifice human beings for the sake of this thing called freedom, because freedom in this country is a god. And I don't know if we even can define what that means, but we sac happily sacrifice especially poor children, young people, to that God. And so Yahweh purges us of this pagan mindset that we have to make a sacrifice to appease the gods, that God has some sort of shape or form because we become like what we worship and Yahweh understood you need to first be purged of those small views of what God is like because we also fashion the gods in our image. We make them look like us, just bigger and stronger and angrier. But I think part of the radical nature of the story of Jesus is this, this God that becomes without shape, without form, without location, is then relocalized into a poor Jewish rabbi in the first century. And I love that, that God kind of, you know, the, the evolution of the idea of God moves away from, you know, Zeus on top of a mountain or, you know, um, what's his face that lived in the ocean or whatever. Who am I thinking of? Poseidon, thank you. <laughs> or Thor or whomever, you know, whoever your ancestors are. God, this God has no shape, no form. He's outside of time. And then all of a sudden, this God localizes himself in a human being. And I think what's so powerful about that, this idea of Jesus as the human God, is that not only does Jesus bless this beautiful ideal of the Yahweh God of the Old Testament, but Jesus also blesses our humanity. Now, how many of you grew up in a church culture where the material world is evil, okay? Your body is evil and disgusting and gross, okay? So most of your theology around sex 
is based on this idea that like everything material and physical is just gross and God's going to burn it all up and we're going to go to this disembodied place called heaven when we die, okay? So um, the same thing when we kind of move that from even the local, like our horrible sexual theology to our horrible theology of creation. It's like why would we take care of the earth when God's just going to burn it all up anyway, which is anti-biblical and it's anti-gospel. But Jesus, the, like God choosing to invest himself in physical form, blesses our bodies, blesses our humanity, blesses creation itself to say this is a God who intimately cares about the physical world and blesses the physical world with God's presence. So Jesus relocalizes our understanding of God in order to bless our humanity. You know, I grew up kind of intuiting. I don't think this was ever taught to me, but thinking of this idea of like Jesus being in heaven, and it usually goes something like this. God looks down and it says, for God was so frustrated with the, whole, with the world that he sent his only begotten son, right? John 3, 16, that's how it goes in my translation. And it's like, Jesus, he's up there, and God's like, ah, oh, got to do something. You're not doing anything. Why don't you go fix this mess? That's the gospel. Um, and so Jesus forsakes his divinity, okay? Divinity means you can't possibly be close to humanity because humanity is gross and we've got sin cooties and you're going to get that all over yourself. It's kind of like we talked about a couple weeks ago with Isaiah where God's like, uh, you can't be in my presence. Gross. Like, go and take a bath and do something. Wear khakis to church and then maybe I'll let you be in my presence, you know? And that's how we often think of it. Like, Jesus coming here as a human being means that he forsook his divinity. He left his divinity behind and he became a human being. And one of the biggest transformations in my theology over the past 10 years is to realize it is actually the evidence of Jesus's divinity that he can come so close to us. Like that's what makes him divine. So it's not like he, he has to give over his like, divinity card to God and then come down here to be a human. No, that was his humanity. And this is what we see in Philippians 2. It's like, even though he didn't consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of, okay? So this is not a God who can, is continually asserting his status of awesomeness and otherness in order to keep away from us. Jesus could have taken advantage of his divinity, but he said, no, my divinity is the very thing that enables me to come close to my own creation to come close to my children, and then to be emptied. Like the emptying, that is God. That's what God is like. Because see, this is the problem, is that all of a sudden we begin to pit this battle between the divinity of God and the humanity of Jesus, and God is angry, and somebody needs to die in order for sins to be you know, healed or, or whatever, and he wants to beat us up, and Jesus kind of stands in the way as a human being and takes all that wrath upon himself, and then God is satisfied, and Jesus is dead, and somehow we're caught in the middle of it, and like that's how it's presented to us. But what we see here is a unified vision of God, that Jesus, as God, God, like Jesus does not come to save us from God. Jesus, as God, comes to save us from ourselves and comes to save us from evil. And it's God, it's Jesus' God-like ability to empty himself, to forsake himself of everything, like taking on the likeness of a human being, and not only that, becoming a slave, which is a subhuman being category, and not only that, but to even empty himself on the cross, to be obedient to death on the cross. That is the evidence of what God is truly like. But it also becomes the pattern for what it means to be truly human. 
So the human God empties himself in obedience, takes all violence upon himself, and passes through death in order to rebirth the world. Think about that last week of Jesus' life. And many of you will know the story from uh, you know, services and gatherings over the years, from pageants or whatever it might be. But this Jesus who's welcomed in on Palm Sunday with these cries of Hosanna, which means to save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's welcomed in by the people. And he actually comes in through the back door of Jerusalem, whether the king, the Caesar, he would have come through the front door with a lot of the same shouts of acclamation, blessed be the Son of God. And Jesus is positing himself as this political rival to Caesar. You know, so often I hear people in this country say, I just wish that you'd stop preaching politics and get back to the gospel. And then I read stories like this, and I don't say, I don't know what that means. I don't think the gospel's partisan. I think it's incredibly political. So Jesus has his triumphal entry as the true king of kings. And then immediately he goes about this business, these, these kind of prophetic demonstrations of what God is doing. First of all, he purges the temple um, of all of these people who got in the way of religious people to make them pay for access to God. Okay? That's what's happening. So anybody who comes along and says, if you do my DVD program, or if you take my course, then maybe you can get closer to God. That kind of thing. And Jesus is like, no, 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 we're not doing this. And he's, he prophetically cleanses the temple. He removes all the stopgaps. Especially those people were set up where um, Gentiles and women would have worshipped. This kind of outer rim in the temple. And he's saying, no, 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 we're not doing that. We're not like putting these kinds of people aside in order to turn a profit uh, in you know, religi- religiosity incorporated. But what we see through that last week of Jesus' life is this progressive abandonment because it doesn't go the way that anybody thought it was going to go. Like his disciples thought this was going to be a political revolutionary that was going to just kind of start this revolution. And everybody was going to jump in and they were going to, like Peter probably thought, like we're going to pick up swords and we're going to go in and we're going to, we're going to beat up the bad guys and we're going to reclaim Jerusalem. We know Judas Iscariot definitely thought in that way, like that was his religious leanings. But we see that none of it goes the way that any of them thought, and they slowly abandon him. And I just wonder, how many of the people that are crying Hosanna on the Sunday are crying out, crucify him on the Friday? Which is really to say, how many of us today are crying out Hosanna, but by the time that we come to the Christ as he actually is, we go, I, no, doesn't work for me. That Jesus doesn't give me what I need. I actually want the empire. I want to be built up in a very particular way. The abandonment of the people of Jerusalem is our abandonment of Christ in that. And so we see a Christ who is, he's arrested, he's tortured, he's killed. This Jesus that gives up everything for the sake of humanity, the God who gives up everything for our sake, but then in this most dramatic moment on the cross, the God who gives up God. When Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That God experiences the existential loss of God. And I wonder how many of you are sitting in this room and you have experienced the loss of God and it is terrifying. That feeling of total abandonment, of rejection, 
it didn't work out the way that you thought it was going to. And you don't know where God is and you don't know who God is and you feel like everything in your world has been upended. Well, Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has also experienced that profound loss of God. But what we see in this story of Jesus is this is the pattern of all things. This is the one eternal cosmic narrative. We've talked about it in the past as orientation, disorientation, and reorientation, but perhaps to put it a little bit more in the life of Jesus, it is life, death, and resurrection. That is what this story means. We can talk about what happened and we can talk about the details, but we have to ask the question, what does the story of Jesus actually mean? What does the story of the human God who comes to earth, who descends, begins in the likeness of human being, and then becomes a slave, and then is obedient to death on the cross for our sake, what does it actually mean for us? Because if it doesn't mean something, who cares? And so many of us, we're so wired to remember the facts of the story that we've never paused to ask the question, well, yeah, what does it actually mean for me? What has it done in my life? And then we recognize, oh yes, there has only ever been one story, life, death, and resurrection. Because we cannot be reborn until we first die. And Jesus came to show us how to die. Now, this is very, very countercultural, and I mean that in the most profound sense because, you know, in our culture, we're so much about manifest destiny and onwards and upwards and always improving and always growing that we don't slow down enough to actually take time to die. In fact, it's offensive to us. Why would I want to die? Why would I want to slow down and enter into that place of the grave? Why would I want to let go of the things that I want in life? And even we've imported that into the Christian narrative, this Americanism into Christianity where we say, we're just to go from glory to glory. I've actually had friends of mine say, well, we don't have to go back to the cross. But we're not supposed to go back there. Now we're just living in the victory of Christ. And we forget that the core message is that Jesus came to show us how to die, to truly die, to die daily, to die over and over and over again as many times as it takes so that we can be reborn. Because as we follow the human God into death, we find that we are brought into new life. The minor theologian of the late 20th and early 21st century, Marilyn Manson, once made comment. <laughs> you didn't think I was going there, did you? I remember one time talking about Nine Inch Nails and Trent Reznor, and there was a dude who was like, hell yeah, brother! <laughs> and it was awesome. But I remember reading this interview with Marilyn Manson. He was talking about um, how insane he thinks it is uh, that so many people in this world walk around with this symbol of death and torture wrapped around their neck on a necklace being the cross. I said, hell yeah, brother. And I, want, I, you know, and I think that is what so often is uh, offensive uh, to many uh, in our culture, this idea that, yes, we absolutely proclaim the central truth of our faith is this symbol of torture and death. 
But I think what the world doesn't understand, what a lot of those, those cultural reference points don't understand is that's actually the way to new life. And I wonder if people like Marilyn Manson had better understood what it truly means to love. That self-giving, other-centered, sacrificial, not looking for anything in return kind of love if maybe their stories would turn out in a radically different way. You see what this poem, this song in, Psalm, or in, in uh, Philippians 2 does is it takes humility in this radically new dimension. We talk about humility like it's a nice thing for us to do. Like when you're a kid, like, yeah, just think about being humble every once in a while. But we don't recognize that for the early church, um, in, in, in the ancient world, humility was not a virtue. In fact, it was a vice. Why would you not be braggadocious? Why would you not be proud of your accomplishments? Why would you not stand out and declare what it is that you have done? Behold me and all of my accomplishments. In the Greek world and in the Roman world, this ver- humility was not a virtue. And then comes along these, uh, first a Jewish movement, and then as it dra- gradually, uh, gradually gathers in Gentiles who put humility front and center of we have been shaped like this man called Christ, this human God, and humility is one of the central tenements of his character. It was offensive to the ancient world, but it became the most attractive thing about it. And people began to flock to this new way, soon called Christianity, because they saw in it a radically different vision of God, a humble God, a self-emptying God, a sacrificial God to recognize that maybe humility is the way that the world actually gets saved. Maybe it isn't about bringing a bigger stick to the fight. And it was that humility that began to shape the vision of agape love for the early Christians. Again, a radically new concept. We were familiar with the love of objects. We were familiar with like erotic love, which is like the give and take kind of love. We were familiar with brotherly love, phileo love. But this agape love, this self-giving, self-emptying, other-focused, not looking for a return kind of love was a radically new concept for early Christians because we had the audacity to believe that in losing our lives for the sake of others, we might actually find them. Instead of love being about what can I get out of this person, this people group, whatever it might be, is to say what does it look like for me to die daily, to give myself over unconditionally and believe as that death of my ego comes about, I'm being reborn. There's another passage uh, in Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 where he speaks uh, of this other-centered, other-focused, other-giving vision of the agape love of Christ. In Ephesians 3, beginning of verse 14, he says, because of this, I am kneeling down before the Father, the one who gives the name of family to every family that there is in heaven and on earth. My prayer is this, that he will lay out all the riches of his glory to give you strength and power through his spirit in your inner being, that the king may make his home in your hearts through faith, that love may be your root, your firm foundation, that you may be strong enough with all God's holy ones to grasp the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the king's love, though actually it's so deep that nobody can really know it. So may God fill you with all his fullness. So, 
the one who is capable of doing far, far more than we can ask or imagine, granted the power which is working in us. To him be the glory in the church and in King Jesus to all generations and to the ages of ages. Amen. That you may be strong enough to grasp the breadth and length and height and depth of the king's love. How high is the love of Christ that it reaches to the heavens, that it is the closest thing to God that has ever been known, that there is nothing higher than that position that Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, to the throne of God himself. How deep is the love of Christ? Not only that Christ would come to our level of existence here, but that he would actually go still lower to the depths of hell that Jesus would experience the total rejection and abandonment by the brokenness of this world, by the brokenness of humanity, that that, that that human God would experience the loss of God. And we can only define hell as the, the perceived loss of God. It's not a geographical location. Hell is our separation from God. Hell is our abandonment from the presence of God. Jesus descended to hell, experienced the complete loss of God. How wide is the love of Christ that it transcends every cross-section of humanity? Nobody is exempt from the invitation. There is no socioeconomic status. There is no nationality. There is no race or ethnicity. There is no sexual orientation. There is whatever it is, whatever those dividing walls of hostility that we have established in humankind to try to order and save the world, there is none of those that can stand up to the love of Christ. But it's radically inclusive in the sense that every cross-section of humanity is welcomed and it is radically exclusive and it is all who will come to me. All who will come to me. That's how wide the love of Christ is. And how long is the love of Christ? The love of Christ redeems the past. That every single moment in the story is met in him. But the love of Christ also shapes the future. That because of his love, we actually have hope. That we are being drawn into his future. Again, as it says in that little poem in Philippians, that now at the name of Jesus, every knee within heaven shall bow, and on earth too, and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Messiah is Lord. Not some, not a few of us, not those of us who have prayed the right prayers and tithed enough to get into heaven. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How long is the love of Christ? And I love that Paul prays this over us. He doesn't inform us because we cannot understand the story, life, death, resurrection, merely by reading it or by studying it. We can only understand it as we live it out daily. We can only understand what the gospel actually means when we live each day, when we die each day, so that we can be resurrected. Because to die means that you abdicate control of your own narrative. A lot of us think that we're dying and we're not. We're just trying to get out of life alive. 
We have a horrible, horrible theology of, of death in this country. We try to do everything we can to avoid it. But to, to die is to give up control and to trust that God is going to carry us through that into new life. And so like the human God, we are taken, blessed, broken, and offered to the world. And this is the pattern that Henry Nouwen gives us in his book, Life of the Beloved. And as a Catholic priest, he's speaking of the centrality of uh, what we call the Holy Eucharist or communion or the Lord's table. There's a lot of different ways to speak of it. And as a priest, he's often uh, kind of repeating this in the symbol that the bread is taken, it's blessed, it's broken, and then it is offered to the world. But we see that in the table not only as the pattern of Christ, but then what we are called to as Christians, as little Christs, we are called to that same pattern. Number one, you and I are taken. What does it mean to be taken? It means to be chosen. You and I have been chosen by God. And first of all, that means that you have been seen as you truly are. And because God has chosen you, has drawn you close, he has declared that you are his beloved in whom he is well pleased. That your identity as this eternal, unchanging identity is not something that you can earn, but it is only a gift that you can receive. So you have been taken, you have been chosen, and then secondly, you have been blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? It means to be spoken well of. And unfortunately, we're so conditioned and we're allergic to flattery that we don't know how to receive blessing. But what does it mean for us to be blessed? It means that God speaks over us and declares us good. And we need that continual affirmation because we don't believe it, do we? We need to come back time and again to sit at the Father's table to be reminded continually in that affirmation that we are good. I want to read, this is the story that Henry Nouwen tells about being blessing. Not long ago, in my own community, I had a very personal experience of the power of a real blessing. So he lived with a community of profoundly handicapped people in Canada, usually mentally and physically, some sort of combination. Shortly before I started a prayer service in one of our houses, Janet, a handicapped member of our community, said to me, Henry, can you give me a blessing? I responded in a somewhat automatic way by tracing with my thumb the sign of the cross on her forehead. Instead of being grateful, however, she protested vehemently, no, that doesn't work. I want a real blessing. I suddenly became aware of the ritualistic quality of my response to her request, and I said, oh, I I'm sorry. Let me give you a real blessing when we are all together for the prayer service. She nodded with a smile, and I realized that something special was required of me. After the service, when about 30 people were sitting in a circle on the floor, I said, Janet has asked me for a special blessing. She feels like she needs that now. As I was saying this, I didn't know what Janet really wanted, but Janet didn't leave me in doubt for very long. As soon as I had said, Janet has asked me for a special blessing, she stood up and walked toward me. I was wearing a long white robe with ample sleeves covering my hands as well as my arms. Spontaneously, Janet put her arms around me and put her head against my chest. Without thinking, 
I covered her with my sleeve so that she almost vanished in the folds of my robe. As we held each other, I said, Janet, I want you to know that you are God's beloved daughter. You are precious in God's eyes. Your beautiful smile, your kindness to the people in your house, and all the good things you do show us what a beautiful human being you are. I know you feel a little low these days and that there's some sadness in your heart, but I want you to remember who you are, a very special person, deeply loved by God and all the people who are here with you. As I said these words, Janet raised her head and looked at me. Her broad smile showed me that she really had heard and received the blessing. When she returned to her place, Jane, another handicapped woman, raised her hand and said, I want a blessing too. She stood up and before I knew it, had put her face against my chest. After I had spoken words of blessing to her, many more of the handicapped people followed, expressing the same desire to be blessed. The most touching moment, however, was, came when one of the assistants, a 24-year-old student, raised his hand and said, And what about me? Sure, he said. Come. He came, and as we stood before each other, I put my arms around him and said, John, it is so good that you are here. You are God's beloved son. Your presence is a joy for all of us. When things are hard and life is burdensome, always remember that you are loved with an everlasting love. As I spoke these words, he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, thank you, thank you very much. We are taken or chosen. We are blessed and reminded of who we truly are. And then we're broken. We're broken. Jesus said that a seed has to fall to the ground and die in order to produce fruit. What does it mean for you and I as followers of Jesus as we follow him into death? What does it mean for us to be broken? It means that we are profoundly affected by life. Yet because of the spirit of Jesus within us, we are broken open but not apart. We are broken open but not apart. Because to be broken open is to enlarge our capacity to love in the same way that Christ loves. Many, many years ago, a dear friend of mine, um, he and his wife were getting ready to have their second child. And he came to me for confession. I'm not giving you his name, so it doesn't count. And he said, I'm terrified. He said, I love my wife so much. And I love my daughter so much. And I don't think I have any more love to give. And I'm worried that this baby's going to be born and I won't have any more. You know, we often feel like we're so limited in our capacity to love. But I'm sure you know how it turned out. As soon as his son was born, he was broken open by the experience. He was ruptured. He, he was ruined. He was destroyed by the presence of this child. But it broke him open in a way that has enlarged him in his capacity to love in a way that he never thought possible. We are taken, we are blessed, we are broken, and finally, we are offered. We are offered to the world as the body of Christ. What does this mean? It means that we begin to find significance in living for others for the sake of the world. And is this not the ultimate Christ pattern? 
that as we are broken, as we are blessed, and we are offered to the world, we become the hands and feet of Christ. We, we die death every day. We die to our ego. We die to our need to protect ourselves. We need to die to our need to be successful or uh, to achieve much or whatever it is to build our little empires. We begin to die to all of that. And we find our significance in living for others. This agape love of Christ. It's the ultimate Christ pattern. And so in short, we receive bread so that we become bread. So I want to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to pray, and we're going to come to the table. And I'm excited because we feel like it's time for us to get back to actual bread. I love that the Baptists have blessed us with these little cups with a little wafer on the top. But as an Anglican, I get very frustrated with that. But we still have those. So if you're uncomfortable with touching bread and whatnot, by all means, take those. And I'm going to invite you to come down. And this is the challenge. All are welcome at the table of the Lord. How wide is the love of Christ? There's no one in here who is exempt from the invitation. But you have to know what you're doing when you come down here, which is to take the bread. You're, you're saying, I want to become the bread. To take the body in Christ into you, to take the blood of Christ into you, to participate in his death means I'm going to risk death in order for resurrection to take place in my life. And I don't know what resurrection will look like, but I know it has something to do with living for others. So all are welcome, but you have to know that it is a response when Jesus says to us, come and die. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you forward. Our elders and some of our leaders will be on the side, and they would love to lay hands and pray for you, whatever the Lord is stirring up within you. Um, they can take you down those hallways so there's a little bit of space. Um, but let's just create an environment where the Lord can do uh, whatever he wants to. And so, Heavenly Father, on this day of all others, the beginning of this holy week, as not only today do we remember Palm Sunday, the shouts of Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We also remember the abandonment, the rejection, the disillusionment, the suffering, the torture, the killing, the death, the loss of all things, including you, for our sake. And God, as we come to your table, I pray that you would do something in us. As we take into ourselves the body and blood of Christ, we too would die. Give us courage to know how to die well, to believe that you desire to resurrect us into new life, into new creation. Teach us how to let go, how to let go of control, to follow you to the depths of hell so that we might participate in that new creation. Bless this bread and this cup that they may become for us this living symbol of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's come to the table. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.